0: Hey, if you need a Bible, raise your hand, uh, it should be marked for Ephesians chapter 1, so turn with me to the book of Ephesians, and we will jump right into uh, the next part of our study. Uh, If you didn't get a chance to see, uh, if you weren't here last week for the overview, I would highly recommend to go out to uh, just our website, click on the watch live, and it'll take you right to our YouTube site, and you can watch last week's. Now last week's is important because it sets the foundation of where Ephesus was, why Paul was writing to Ephesus, how he ended up in Ephesus, uh, a little bit of back, it, it gives you a background of what it was like to live in Ephesus, you know, Ephesus was uh, a very pagan place, uh, you know, religious, uh, but again, they just had the false, they had the false gods, we, we looked at the fact that, you know, they had the great temple of Diana or Artemis, uh, which was world renowned, one of the seventh... Uh, uh, wonders of the world in the ancient, in the ancient world. And so you get an idea of what it was like to be there and what it was like to have a church planted there. And we cover verses 1 through 5, but we want to pick up this morning uh, starting with verse 6. And I'll be reading uh, verses 6 through 10. And if you're taking notes this morning, user error, got to get this turned back on, there we go. This is our study this morning, His will and His purpose, and I'm going to pick it up with verse 6, Ephesians chapter 1, to the praise and glory, or the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence." Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. Let's pray again. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word that you breathe through the Apostle Paul more than 2,000 years ago or thereabouts, and we pray that you'd breathe on us this morning, drive everything out of this room that would distract us from hearing from the Alpha and Omega, Jesus himself. In your name we pray, amen. Now, if you take what we looked at last week in verses 1 through 5, and you go all the way to where we'll be headed up to about verse 14, uh, G. Campbell Morgan had this to say, and G. Campbell Morgan, pastor in London uh, for years, uh, he's long been home with the Lord, but he had this to say, he said, the method of this predestination that Jesus had said this before the foundations of the earth, this church God has foreseen, whether it be in Ephesus, whether it be in Richmond, Virginia, whether, there, whether it be in Africa, Europe, around the world, God saw an eternity past what his church would be. And he sp- describes this method of predestination being threefold. Redemption, in verse 7. Revelation, in verses 8 through 12. And realization, and that we, we, we've come to fully experience being the body of Christ, being the sons and daughters of God. Realization, in verses 13 and 14, which we won't touch on today. Uh, But those three R's, redemption, revelation, and realization. Now, we'll look a little bit this morning. It's not a deep doctrinal dive on the doctrine of election versus the doctrine of free will. And by the way, some will say, which one do you believe in? I say yes to both. I believe in them both because they're both found in the Scriptures. If you read your Bible you will find many verses about free will, that God has given man a free will. You'll read verses in your Bible about God has chosen with the foreknowledge of God. So they're both in the Scripture. and we'll uh, As we go through the book of Ephesians, we'll continue to address these as we see them, and hopefully the Lord will give us all that understanding that He wants us to have on the matter of election versus free will and how they are not in conflict with one another, but they're complementary to one another. Now, the first thing we want to look at this morning, it starts here in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. If you're taking notes this morning, the first thing we'll look at uh, is His grace. We'll look at three things. Um, This first one here, mention verse 6, His grace. Uh, A couple of things that I want to just draw your attention to. It says here in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. The first thing, if we have an observation of this grace, it would be that it's glorious. Wouldn't you agree that God's grace is glorious? I mean, that's why John Newton wrote, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, amazing. Because God's grace is really amazing. You and I can have grace, but our grace is very, has a very short rope compared to God's grace, doesn't it? People can test our grace, and find that when they do test our grace, find that the, the, the depth is, doesn't go but so far. But the depth and the riches of God's grace, it really is glorious. In Romans 5.20, I love Romans 5.20. I'm sure you do too, if you've forgotten what it says. But where sin abounded, grace abounded more. All the sins that are in this room that you've ever committed collect all of our sins and the sins that will be in the future, take them all together, it's a big pile. Wouldn't you agree? And yet God's grace abounds more than all of our sins. We could show video after video of more testimonies like I showed this morning, show one after another, and God's grace is more than all of those sins. That's why Paul was so dedicated to Christ. You know, Jesus said, he who is forgiven much is going to love much. Isn't that true? Once you realize what God has done for you, your love for him grows because you realize, wow, I, I can never pay this back, but I can be surrendered. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. But you recognize that it is glorious. It's a marvelous grace. It's an amazing grace. If The hymn goes like this. Some of you probably heard this hymn. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe, you that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sins. That hymn's been around a long time. And it's still true to this day. And I love a lot of the pastors of old and uh, a lot of the hymn writers of old were pastors, not all of them, but quite a few of them were. And uh, they were so doctrinally sound because they stayed in the Word. So when when a song came out, it didn't come out as fluffy and top 40-ish. It came out as some level of depth. Now, I'm not against all the top 40 sounding stuff. I mean, we've gone with the youth group and, and, and enjoyed the worship, but there's a depth to understanding God's grace. And this hymn illustrates it well. But it's Jesus alone that has made us accepted. Look what it says. It says, The glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the blood. He made us accepted. There's no other way to be accepted but through Christ. Jesus said this in John 14:6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You can't get through it with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul can't make someone accepted in the beloved. Someone, I can pray for someone. I've prayed for many people over the years. So hey, hey, will you pray for me? I'll pray. But I can't make a person accepted before God nor can you. You as parents, you can't say, God, I want you to accept my child. They have to personally come to Jesus, don't they? God doesn't have grandchildren. He is the only way. Jesus is the one that makes us accepted. I love that testimony that she talked about, there's only one I'm living for now, Yeshua. He's the one that makes us accepted. There's not another way. There's not another religion. He's the one that makes us accepted. So this observation of His grace, that it's glorious and it is appropriated only by the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two in this same uh, observation here, the means of His grace, it says in verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood. So we know that the grace is glorious, it only comes through Jesus. Remember what we talked about last week. The first three chapters of Ephesians, and there's overlap into the other chapters as well, but generally speaking, the first three chapters of Ephesians are doctrinal in nature. What does that mean? That the first three chapters, Paul is setting the foundations of our faith. These are truths that can never be altered. So whether a church is founded now or a hundred years from now, the pastor should still be teaching the exact same things. They'll never change. Go back to 1850, they should have been preaching the exact same of truth. In other words, something like this. Jesus is the same yesterday and today forever. He's the only way to heaven. That should always be preached. That grace can't be bought, can't be earned, that should always be taught. So Paul is establishing in the first three chapters primarily that these truths are foundational. They are like putting the foundation in the ground. You don't build a house until you actually have the footings in until you actually have the concrete down, you have the slab down, then you can start framing walls. So the first three chapters, Paul's laying this foundation that this is the structure of our faith. This is how our faith was purchased by God. This is what our faith is made of. This is what makes this true versus other things false. This is what he's laying out. Now the means of his grace, a doctrinal truth here, a foundational truth that will never change is that we have redemption or salvation, or we're changed from being in a wrong standing with God into a right standing with God by coming to Jesus through repentance, but if Jesus didn't shed his blood, we would have a problem, wouldn't we? You know, I don't even understand exactly how this works. And anyone says they fully understand it, they don't. You know, it says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Right, it says this in Hebrews. We don't know why God... Now, we know the life is in the blood. We understand all that. But God is the one that in his own wisdom determined that Jesus had to be crucified. He couldn't be hung. Do you understand this? He couldn't be electrocuted. It had to be the shedding of blood. Now, this was all foretold and foreshadowed because again and again there was the sacrificial um, lambs, and you had the, the, the blood of bulls and goats, and always was with the blood. Remember, even the mercy seat, they had to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Why that? For whatever reason, God says this is the only atoning way. This is the only way there's a redemption. If you worship, say, well, I follow Buddha. He didn't shed his blood. And if he did, still would be a problem because his blood was not perfect. It would have sin. You and I have sin in our flesh, not just in our spirit, but we actually have sin everywhere. And it, now it's manifested, the, the result of sin, we see that our bodies decay. And you know, it all starts with sin. But the blood had to be shed. The redemption is in his blood. There's no remission without the blood. In 1 Peter 1, 18-19, it says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. Now God has a lot of silver or gold. He owns all. Cattle on a thousand hills, but that's not what we're redeemed with. Uh, from your aim- I love how Peter says, Peter's a straight shooter. From your aimless conduct. That was us before we came to Christ. Aimless conduct. Say, so, well, I was very organized. You were, or- you were organized and aimless at the same time. <laughs> from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, now he's speaking again to uh, the Jewish people that would be trying to keep the law, but with the precious, you were, here's what you're redeemed by, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamp without blemish or spot. Peter's teaching a doctrinal truth here, just like Paul is. Redemption's only through the blood, but Peter's making sure that you understand that not anyone, anyone's blood had to be without blemish, spotless, no sin. These are Doctrinal foundations that'll be true for all eternity. The forgiveness of God, this grace, it's His unmerited favor bestowed upon us. Because even when you come to God and you say, Please cleanse me, please forgive me, please apply the blood of Jesus, God still has to bestow it. And He's not going to reject those that come with a heart of true pleading with the Lord please save me, please change me, please turn me around, and God will do that. God will, by his own grace, extend that forgiveness. But it says that um, through the, uh, in verse 7, in him we have the redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his, of his grace, the riches of his grace, God chooses to extend forgiveness. It's his reservoir of grace. There are reasons that will be unveiled when we get to heaven why God would do this. We'll understand more when we get there. Uh, But at the core is the goodness of God. We we understand that the goodness of God is revealed in Scripture. We understand that the compassion of God is revealed in His Son at the cross. There um, There was a sign that was posted outside of a church years ago, and it read as follows, Do come in trespassers will be forgiven. Do come in, trespassers will be forgiven. This is the heart of God. This is the heart of God's grace, metaphorically speaking. Uh, If you think in in similar terms, uh, we could have a sign that would be sitting right next to the cross that would maybe have a line underneath of that sign it would say, an eternal home awaits. Not only that trespassers are welcome and they will be forgiven, but underneath it, God would say, oh, one other thing, add this, an eternal home awaits. Not only that you would be able to come in, but you'd come in and go up. Amen. That's God's ultimate desire. We can't really understand the forgiveness and favor of God. We have to believe in it. So Jesus said, you must believe. Again and again in the book of John, John mentions the word believe more than any other of the Gospels. Believe, believe, believe. It doesn't say you must understand it. It says you must believe it. Don't worry about understanding everything God says. Believe it first, and then you'll understand it. Isn't that true? Believe it first, then you'll understand it. Not understand it first, and then you'll believe it. Some of the things... Now, some things God gives us enough understanding to have that initial belief, but many of the other things that are doctrinal say, wow, that, that's, still, that's really heavy. Yeah. God has a lot of weight, but, he does, but you only have to have as much knowledge as like a f- five or six year old. He so said you have to become like a little child to enter into the kingdom of God, to understand His grace, to appreciate His grace. We may not understand it all, and we certainly don't deserve it, Uh, We deserve the exact opposite of his grace, and yet his grace is a reality. It's a reality. It's just as real as the oxygen that we're breathing. It's a, I learned this years ago when I got saved at Calvary Fort Lauderdale, and it stuck with me for life. It's a true truth. It's a true truth that far exceeds other truths. You know, it's true that the earth is a sphere, but that's not life-altering for me. Is it for you? It's true that the universe is massive. God only does that to show us how massive he is. Uh, most, there's no life out there, despite you know, what uh, you know, the weekly world news might say next week or something like that. There's really not. God put all the life on this tiny little speck just to show he loved humanity. But the universe being massive, or the earth being round, or the sun being the center of our solar system, those are scientific truths, but they don't alter your life at the spiritual level. You can know them, but they're not saving truths. No, the universe tells us something about God's power and his authority. But forgiveness and unmerited favor, well, that tells us about the depth of his love, and the depth of his mercy, and the depth of his grace, and the desire to have his presence in us. Someone once wrote this, There is only one person God cannot forgive. The person who refuses to come to him for forgiveness. That's it. That's the depth of God's grace. The only person God cannot forgive is the one that will not come. Take a look at the next thing. This is uh, his grace. We're going to look at the next couple of verses here, which I've titled his revealing. We have his grace here in verses 6 uh, and 7, but verse 8 says, which he made to abound toward us uh, in all wisdom and prudence, his revealing, which he made to abound toward us. The first thing, if you're taking notes under this revealing here, is he came to us. No matter who you are, the initial point of being drawn to the Lord was God coming to you first. For God so loved the world that he gave. He he came first to us. He came our way. John Bunyan wrote this poem. I'm going to try and read it, but you know, John Bunyan wrote A Pilgrim's Progress. You guys have probably read that, and they have a children's version that you can give to your kids. It's uh, one of the most ri- widely read books in the history of the world. Uh, it's right up there after the Bible. It's in, it might even be number two. I don't remember where it lists, but it's up there. Uh, but he wrote this poem, and uh, it's a little bit old English, but uh, try and follow along. He said, man's like a candle in a candlestick, made up of tallow and a little wick. And as the candle is before it is tis lighted, just such they be who are in sin benighted. Nor can a man his soul with grace inspire, more than a candle set themselves on fire. Candles receive their light from what they are not, men grace from him, from whom at first they cared not. True, isn't it? A candle can't light itself. A candle doesn't light itself. I love the wisdom of men that just spent time in the Word. They would observe a little thing, and God would reveal to them and say, write this in a book because it'll help people understand stuff. <clears throat> but a candle can't light itself, but once it's lit, it shines. And we can't light ourselves, but once the grace of God comes towards us, God lights that wick. We can't light it ourselves. We wouldn't even know to light it. But God comes to us. W.E. Best said the sinner apart from grace is unable to be willing and unwilling to be able. Unable to be willing and unwilling to be able. Now this doesn't negate, to go back to uh, when I talked about at the beginning, that in Ephesians and other parts of the New Testament we see this um, contrast, but it's actually complementary, between... The doctrine of sovereign grace or election versus free will. And so they're both taught in the Scriptures. This doesn't negate free will, and it doesn't negate a choice on our part. Rather, it opens the door of opportunity to free will. God is sovereign enough to give free will and sovereign enough to know it all as well, all at the same time. This doctrine of election or God's sovereignty and salvation, it does remain a mystery. It really does. I mean, no one, no one has ever figured out what all of this means. When you find someone that said they figured it all out, uh, you know that you're talking to someone who hasn't figured it all out. It is somewhat mysterious, even to this day. Some of the verses that, that are in the Scriptures, you say, wow, um, foreknowledge, predestined, before the foundation of the earth. But then it clearly says, "All." Jesus says in Revelation, all who are willing, come. All mean, God, by the way, God doesn't mess up words. Oh, I, did I say all? I meant uh, three quarters of you. <laughs> or one eighth of you. Now, he means all. Everyone. Election and free will, they ride on parallel tracks. One doesn't negate the other, they ride on parallel tracks. Everyone has the opportunity to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Russell Moore wrote this. Um, he said. God is not some metaphysical airport security screener waving through the secretly pre-approved and sending the rest to a holding tank for questioning. Instead, the doctrine of election tells us that all who have come to know Christ are here on purpose. In other words, uh, every time that election is mentioned, it's written to those that already are saved. It, It is telling those of you that have come to Christ you have an eternal purpose that God, it's telling if you have come to Christ, you free will, you receive the Lord, it's not telling you were, hey, you were hand chosen, you were the frozen chosen, right? You know, it's not saying that. It's saying that those of you that received the call of the Lord, the free will call of the Lord, and you humbled yourself and said, yes, I'll come, that God has an eternal purpose for you. That the purpose was preordained. Does that make sense? The purpose was preordained. The calling was preordained. The doctrine that you will now speak for me was preordained. All of that. And again, there's things that no one can answer. We'll get to heaven. It'll, it'll, It'll resolve some of those things. But our salvation has always and will always flow from God coming to us first. Amen? That he came towards us first. He came to the apostles and said, come and follow me. He came to them and said, drop your nets. You come to me. It's his unlimited goodness. It's his love. And for us, what did we bring to the table, we brought absolute depravity to the table. But our ears heard. Jesus would say it this way. He said it often. He goes, he who has ears, let him hear. Well, everyone he was talking to usually had something called an ear. He was simply saying... Your heart has to hear. I know you have physical ears, but are you going to listen to what God is saying? He's coming to you in the form of me, his son. We brought to the table just depravity and hopelessness. Now it's not just that God extends grace that nobody could ever earn, but he causes it to abound towards us. That we've been running in the other direction, uh, and the river of God's grace caught up to us. Isn't that great? But this is a river that doesn't drown us. This is a river that actually saves us. Totally different. River that saved us. Abound, by the way, in the Greek, it means perisuo. This word abound, it means to exceed a fixed number. To exceed a fixed number or measure and to overflow. That's why he uses this Greek word perisumo that says God's grace exceeds a fixed spot. It overflows it. it the, the, the riverbanks say it, this is where the water line is. God's grace completely floods it and touches everything. Now, the next thing he says uh, here, if you're taking notes, he opened our mind. It says, uh, which he causes his grace to abound in us in all wisdom and prudence. Wisdom and prudence. So God opens our mind. You ever notice that the world is open minded about everything except for the gospel of Jesus? If you're watching the news at all today, they will lift anything up as genius and smart unless it's actually coming from God. It's the dumbest stuff, and people will call it, this is brilliant, and you know it's going to collapse in no time. Flat, but nevertheless, it will be lauded as if it's wisdom. But real wisdom comes from God. And according to John 1, God's given enough light for every person, mind, to see truth or to understand truth, and to understand who Jesus is, and to understand who we are and what our need for him is. God's given enough light that all men are without excuse. Romans 1 also states this as well. I've said it many times before, and I'll say it many more times, the wisest thing we've ever done or someone here could do today is to say yes to Jesus. It's the wisest thing. You might do some other wise things in life, but never again will you ever do anything wiser than saying yes to Jesus, to take the light that God's given and say yes to that. Wisdom isn't just our minds open to the truth, though. Understand this. Wisdom is not just our minds being open to truth that we should say yes. No, wisdom is saying yes. Did you catch that? Wisdom is in our mind open to the fact that, yeah, I probably should say yes. Wisdom is saying yes. That we do say yes to the Lord, that we have said yes to the Lord. That's wisdom, not knowing that we should. You remember the rich young ruler, he walked away sad. He knew what he should do. He had enough wisdom to know what he should do, but he didn't have the true wisdom to say yes to the Lord. You know, when Paul was witnessing to Festus and King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, King Agrippa said these words to Paul. Now, King Agrippa, he had Bernice and the pomp and the circumstance of everyone coming in to the theater there in Caesarea, and he says to Paul, after Paul gives his testimony, he says, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. In other words, I know what you're saying is true, but I can't go there almost is not wisdom. Wisdom is saying yes. Aren't you glad that he opened the closed part of your mind? Like we saw that video this morning, he opened her mind and opened my mind. I remember when I was on the fence, do I want to follow Jesus? Do I want to stay doing what I'm doing? I was on the fence because I was convinced that if I followed Jesus, life would be miserable. And the whole time people are holding on to all this stuff that's trying to prop them up Jesus says, "I'm going to give you something that's going to build you up, lift you up." I'm glad he closed. Uh, I'm glad he closed my mind of the deceptions after, and then opened my mind up to the truth and the light of Christ. He opened our mind. The next thing here, he says, he, um, he uh, not only wisdom and prudence, but having made known to us the mystery of his will, he uncovered his will. Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will. There are many mysteries of God that remain un- unknown, unexplainable, and far beyond our comprehension. Would you agree? There's a lot of things about God I don't understand. I still don't understand how the Trinity works. Does anyone here, Can anyone give me the absolute perfect definition of it all? I know what it is. I know that God is three distinct. I know he's one. But how it all works is still a mystery. Now, I like that God has many things that I can't understand. It shows his infinite power well beyond ours. But there's many things that are still unexplainable. Beyond our comprehension, God tells it. He doesn't tell us every reason for it, but he says, this is who I am. I love it. You know, Moses like, can you tell me who sent me? I am that I am. Okay, I'll take that to Pharaoh. (laughs) I am that I am. He was not in a mood to tell all the facts that day, right? That this is who I am. I'm the self- it really means I'm self-sustaining. And he, you remember with Job, he says, will, will, will a man question me? I was like, you know, you see people say, if God's really God, then strike me right now, right? Give him time, right? <laughs> not that he wants to do that. God's really, he's also love. That's why he doesn't strike at that moment. He certainly could. But there's many mysteries that we don't have all the answers to um, beyond our comprehension, even exactly how God orchestrated salvation. But we do know this, that his coming, that Jesus coming into the world and the lies of the saint and the scriptures have revealed this truth that no longer remains a mystery. And here's what it is. This mystery is no longer a mystery. God's heart and desire is that the whole world be saved. That he's revealed. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Anyone, whosoever means everybody, that's been revealed. He's saying, that's not a mystery anymore. I want everyone to come to know me. And he told us why in this revealing. It says that he's made known the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purchased in himself. In himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together. Now he goes on here. Um, In second Peter three nine, it says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He told us why the whole reason for his grace, the whole reason for the blood, the whole reason for the cross, the whole reason for the purpose that God has called for each individual person is that all would come to repentance. You see, it pleases God, it says here, uh, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, his pleasure for himself. Now, God doesn't really need anything, but he can create anything for himself that he wants to, even though he doesn't need it because Paul told this in the book of Acts that God doesn't need anything, and yet he creates it not only for his pleasure, but he wants to just bless those that would receive this grace. It pleases the Lord to set men free. It pleases the Lord to cleanse them. It pleases the Lord to save them. It pleases the Lord. That testimony, if you enjoyed that testimony, Jesus enjoys it a trillion times more than you do. He loves seeing people set free, from Satan that wants to take them and drag them right into hell. He loves to clothe the sons of God. He loves when the prodigal came home, there was a robe, there was a ring, and there was rejoicing. The prodigal came home, the father threw his arms around him, right? Threw his arms around him and embraced him. And it was a picture. Jesus told that parable that was not... One of the apostle stories, Jesus told that parable because Jesus said, I want you to understand the heart of my father, he wants to throw his arm around every single person, no matter how much in the pigsty they are. By the way, I heard a new perspective on the prodigal son. I was reading uh, recently. I don't know if you've ever heard this version. But a pastor was telling the story of the prodigal son, and he was wanting to emphasize the disagreeable attitude of the older brother. You remember him? He was, the one, he was the only one that didn't party with the family that day, right? <laughs> and after describing the rejoicing of the whole household and the return of the prodigal son, the pastor spoke of one in the midst of the festivities that failed to share the joy of everybody else in the occasion. And he says, can anybody tell who this was? And a small boy had been listening intently to the detail of the story. He put up his hand, he's with a big smile he beamed, I know, it was the fatted calf. <laughs> Do you understand that? The fat, see, the fatted calf didn't enjoy the party. Um, it was the meal for the party, right? So uh, the kid's like, you know, this is an, o- this is an obvious one, Pastor. You know, the calf. You didn't even get a say in the party. But sometimes animals make better decisions than people don't they? Animals, they, they, they seem to make wiser decisions sometimes than people. But Jesus didn't shed his blood for the animal world, even though he referred to it a lot. I was out walking this morning, and, and Jesus would, and I, some of the things that I do because Jesus said, Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. So I'm out walking this morning. I don't run on Sundays. Uh, I, I, I run during the week, but Sundays I'll go for a prayer walk early in the morning, and, and I was walking out there, and I'm just observing that the bird's they didn't care that it was daylight savings. <laughs> they paid no attention to the temperature. I got gloves on. It was, felt like winter out there. Uh, and they were just singing away. And there was this one red cardinal about a, on a 30-foot tree just sitting at the top, had his chest out, practicing for the solo role. I mean, he was just, <laughs> it was awesome. I'm like, his tune and everything. And God just, Jesus said, look at the birds. They, they don't worry like you. They seem to know their place, right? He said, even look at the flowers. They don't don't toil or spin and all these things. And we can learn something when we look at that. But remember, Jesus didn't die for the birds. He didn't die for the fatted calf. He died for the souls of men. And God tells us that he wants all to be saved. He wants all to be rescued. He wants all to be loved by Christ. This is the doctrinal foundation that Paul says, Ephesians, don't ever forget this. This is why Jesus came. It gives him great pleasure to save souls. But the choice is up to each person. You know, suppose some of you, we got two mission teams going. One team's going to Guatemala. One team's going to El Salvador this summer. Now, suppose you go, and you're down there, and you have the opportunity to offer someone a a meal that you know is dirt poor. And you offer them clothing, School supplies, maybe even that their kids could even go to school through the ministry of Pastor George or Pastor Jeff down there. And some of those people you'll meet will beam and say thank you. But what if someone says, I don't want your help. You can't make someone take your help. God reaches out to people all the time and they slap the hand away and say, I don't want your help. I'm doing it the way I'm doing it. No one can blame God for God reaching out his hand and them saying, I don't want the help. Because Jesus, when he reaches out, it's a nail-pierced hand. It's not just a hand that has a $100 bill in it. It's a nail-pierced hand that says, I'll give you... And it, God's not going to make someone say yes to that. But the offer is sincere. Wouldn't you agree? Have you ever offered someone sincerely something? And even if they weren't a person in great need, you knew because of their pride they couldn't say yes. You knew they wanted to say yes. I want to pay the bill. No, 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 you're not paying this bill. I want to pay the bill. You really did want to pay the bill. They wouldn't let you because... And you were trying to bless them. You can't make a person, but God extends. The offer is sincere. The offer is more than sincere. It's sacrificial. But a person still has to say yes to it. And God wants us to say yes with great joy. The last thing here as we close this morning... We saw his revealing His desire. What is His desire? I titled this His Will and His Desire. It's found in verse 10 that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, there had to be a completion of all things. In the fullness of time, He might gather together in one all things that are in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, in Him. In Him. This is another doctrinal truth. What is the church? This last part, in Him. It's... It's not this building. It's not a bigger building down the street. It's not the one with fancy stained glass. Not a cathedral in Germany or England or Italy or anywhere else. What is the church? It is Christ made up of all those who are in Christ. Christ is the church. He's the head of the body. But it says here that in the dispensation, the fullness of times, plural, dispensation. Now, uh, I believe. Another doctrinal thing, that Scripture has dispensations. What is a dispensation? They are set periods. In other words, there are different periods of time that God worked a certain way. We have one dispensation, Adam and Eve, to the flood. It's called pre-Noaic, right? You have that dispensation. Uh, People lived longer, way longer. Way longer. Oh, you're only 400. Ha, you're just a baby. You know, that kind of thing, right? Give it time, you'll understand how this whole work thing works. When you're 800, you'll understand, right? You know, so things were different, dispense, different dispensation of time. The atmosphere was different. You have post-Noaic flood. Then you have the time from the flood to the law was given in Moses, right? Different, different time period. There was no Israel, there was no nation-state of Israel. There was no law. This guy Abraham comes along, or God brings him along, right? God births a nation. So there's different, disp- and there's the law period, right? Israel given the law all the way up until the time of Jesus comes, post-resurrection. We're in the church age, also called the age of grace. It's a dispensation time that God is extending grace to all. But he also, in this time period, when you get saved, you get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit which we'll talk more about as we go through Ephesians, and we'll talk about the whole year, because I want to reemphasize to you that the power in your life is not up here. It is the power of the Holy Spirit activating what you know is true. Just knowing truth is not enough, but the Holy Spirit flowing through us. But the dispensation of the Holy Spirit coming. Now back in Galatians chapter 4, 4 it also said, in Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. That was not plural, the fullness of time, because that was a dispensation that says specifically, when the fullness of time, Jesus was sent forth. But all the times are various dispensations. Here, plural. Does that make sense? Each dispensation matters. Just like in your life, you could kind of carve your life into different chapters. Well, there was my time before marriage. There was my time after we had kids. There was my time when we became empty nesters, so many that are further in life. You can see the different dispensations of time in your lifetime. They're different periods. They're distinct even. There was the time we lived in that state. We're never going to live there ever again, right? Dispensation. Different time. I hope that helps. But here's the, here's the heart as we come to a close here. That in the dispensation the fullness of the times, God says, when all the times that I have preordained, and there's still some left, right? There's still the book of Revelation. There's still a great battle coming. There's still Jesus returning and putting his foot on the Mount of Olives. It'll split in half. Those things haven't happened yet. There's still some times left to happen. When those things have all happened, Paul is saying here, when all these times are fully accomplished, that he might gather together in one all things that are in Christ. Who's that? Well, that's the church, all that are in Christ. The Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, the tribulation saints, all coming together, all one, that he would gather them together, and heaven, and earth, bring them all together. And here it is, in a nutshell. His desire is a family gathering for all eternity. That's his desire. Marriage supper of the Lamb, gathering the church together. You know, earlier I, we showed the video, and it, you know, this is written uh, to the Ephesians, but it's written to all believers. That God's saying someday, people you've not met, you will have supper with Dania in heaven. You'll know even as you know. You'll know your brothers and sisters who are in North Korea, Africa. China, South America. I love when Paul's on the road to Damascus, says Jesus speaks to him, Paul, Paul, and he spoke out to him in the Hebrew language. You'll actually know Hebrew then. Well, I don't know if you'll know Hebrew. Jesus knows Hebrew, apparently. So, um, but the point is, whatever language we speak, there'll be no language barriers. Some people debate, will heaven be Hebrew? We don't know that. I know he spoke to Paul in the Hebrew language, but that was a that was because Paul was deeply steeped in the law. He didn't speak to him in Greek. He didn't speak to him in Aramaic. But when we get to heaven, one language, we'll all be able to understand one another. This is God's desire. is a family reunion for all eternity. Isn't that great to know? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again this morning for your amazing grace. We thank you that your will and your desire, some of it we don't understand, but we understand enough to know that you so love the world. And you've just simply said that whosoever believes. And Lord, we believe that you've called us by name. We believe you've given us a free choice. And we believe, Lord, you have a purpose for our lives and the lives of this church and the lives of the church worldwide. And Lord, we look forward to the day where we spend all eternity with you as the sons and daughters of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.